Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here. Great to have you back. I've got a special guest, a man who needs no introduction but gets one anyway. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Adrian Cockroft. Hi there. Great to be here. Good to have you here. Now, Adrian is uh, Vice President of Cloud Architecture Strategy here at AWS, and there were many, many, many topics we could have chosen to talk about, but we've kind of landed on uh, something you've been talking about a lot of late, which is chaos architecture. So, Adrian, maybe let's start by defining what we mean when we use a scary term like chaos next to our refined architecture word. Yeah, the name is um, puts a few people off, but it's always good to have a new name for something because then people kind of latch onto it, um, kind of like microservices. It's sort of you half knew what it meant, but you had to drill in a bit to figure out what we were actually talking about. And chaos, chaos architecture, chaos engineering is one of those things. A lot of people heard about the Chaos Monkey that Netflix uh, released as an open source project a few years ago and have sort of half got the idea. And it's really a development of that. Uh, Netflix themselves published a book recently, one of those small, cheap uh, sort of free books that you can sign up to to get um, from O'Reilly. And it's it really lays out a much more sophisticated approach to figuring out how to make your systems more robust by introducing a small amount of chaos to uh, perturb the system and show that it can absorb the, the impact. And that's the basic uh- concept. It's interesting because, I mean, it's, it is a catchy title and something that sort of gets your attention, but fundamentally it is a real mind shift change, particularly for architects, enterprise architects and software developers, but really anyone who's used to building systems because certainly if, if you've been in the industry for a long time, you're brought up with the kind of the, what I would call the, the golden screwdriver approach to, to engineering, which is you make super high-quality components, you spend as much as you can, you, you make them as robust as you can. And, and you kind of, in robusticity, you trust. And what we've found time and time again through painful experiences, no matter how robust a human being tries to make something, it, it never ends up that way, does it? It just doesn't work. Yeah, we built a whole bunch of fragile systems that if you look at them funny, they fall over. Um, it's, it's something where it's not really a new idea, right? So if you go to anybody that's running a decent-sized business and say, do you have a backup data center and a disaster recovery plan? They say, of course we do. And then you ask the the dreaded follow-up question, so how often do you actually fail over to your backup data center? <laughs> and that's where people, occasionally people go have the right answer, because, oh, we do it every week or every month. But in many cases, uh, it's, oh, we've never done that. It's too scary. Um, or we do it one application at a time. Or one time is that, oh, we just spent nine months planning. We did it for the first time ever last week, and everyone was very happy and scared about it. Um, so the idea of having a disaster recovery plan and spending money on hardware and, and data centers and things is, isn't a new idea. And what we're really saying is that you should automate this and you should do it all the time, and you should do it more. If it's painful, you should do it more often. Is that, That's a phrase out of the continuous delivery movement. And it's really the the idea here is that if you get really good at automating uh, these kinds of failovers, then the the code that you execute when you fail over is no, no longer the least well-tested part of your system. It becomes a well-tested part of your system and it doesn't fall flat on its face every time something weird happens. 
Yeah, it, it's an interesting with all these, you know, again, multi-million dollar investments in DR, et cetera, and you can be standing there and say, let's let's do it right now while we're all here and people don't want to do it. You're like, well, if you're not going to do it now, what happens on you know, Saturday night when everyone's at home? Yeah. So so maybe before we dive into some of the, the technicalities of it, I think, Adrian, what's really interesting is let's talk about how do you have the, the, the mind shift change conversation with a CIO or a CEO or a COO, you know, people who are, who just want their IT to work. And if someone comes to them with this idea of let's, let's introduce chaos, they're likely to kind of recoil in horror because they think they've got a stable environment. How do you broach that conversation at that level without getting to the, the technical weeds that we're going to go into? I think there's, there's a couple of ways in the, the first thing is that if you're trying to build systems that change very slowly, you can polish them and make them very resilient, and they tend to just sit there, right? So if you're trying to build a nuclear power station, you can put an awful lot of work and planning to make sure it doesn't melt down, and you put all these processes in. And once it's built, it's not really going to get major upgrades all the time. It's supposed to just sit there and work for a few decades, right? So that class of system... It's sort of like the people have a mental model that they're building software that's like that, right? They're going to make it perfect and then it's going to not change. And then you get to the reality, which is that the product team want to change it all the time. Uh, you've got security patches that need to be installed. So it's going to be reinstalled and redeployed all the time. And with the actual systems, there's business value in being able to be agile and deliver continuously and get a very short time to value in terms of I. Make a, I want to make a change and I can get that change in less than a day or, or a few days rather than spending months planning for it. So that agility means that you can't be sure that you've got your system fully polished and, and working. And it, it basically makes you confront the reality that every system has contained some amount of breakage all the time. And the real question is how well it deals with that breakage. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so really, also, I guess this this comes down to a risk management, a risk mitigation discussion. And let's face it, senior execs spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about that, which is as they should be. And really, what we're saying is taking this approach to architecture is, by definition, reducing the real risk of the systems versus this perceived "I'm pr- protected because I've got active, passive, and I test it every eighteen months." This is actually a lower risk approach, even though it feels higher risk, isn't it? Yeah, and because people are driven, I mean, a lot of the reason people move to cloud in the first place is they want speed, right? They don't want to spend months getting machines. They want to get them in minutes. And so the really interesting thing is we now have such good API-driven repeatable automation that you can automate a lot more of these disaster recovery failover kind of things in a much broader way. And the resources you need to fail over to are elastic. So you don't have to have a complete copy of your data center on the other side of the country. You can have a you know, CloudFormation template, or you can have something that's slightly, you know, maybe the data's there, but the things aren't running at scale. You can have all kinds of options here for running system distributed systems because the cloud's made it much easier to deploy things globally and in a very automated, manageable way. So all of these failover operations that used to be really painful and dangerous become much easier to manage safely. So I think that's the real technology change and then that the, that makes it possible then the business driver of the need for agility and to be able to respond to the market is what's pushing people to do this. For sure. So so from an implementation perspective, how do we 
how do we introduce, I, I guess, uh, the right level of chaos or, or how do I introduce it in a way that is manageable versus just you know, tearing my environment down because it maybe it is a little more fragile than I thought it was? Yeah, the the book that Netflix wrote, I mean, Netflix, I think, uh, you know, I, I was working at Netflix years ago in the early days of this, but they've done an enormous amount in the four years since I left, left Netflix. They've been driving this to the point where they are running uh, if you have some sort of maturity rating, you know, you have those um, you know, high maturity, they're, they're really at the high maturity end. They're extremely automated. They're doing all these cool things and you can't get there from here for most people. So really, where do you start? And I think there's, there's a couple of ways of thinking about this. And the place where I'd start is with people. Because if you, if you have your systems, you know, they're fra- so fragile that if you even touch them, they're going to break then it doesn't make sense to be start doing chaos experiments because you know it's going to break. What you're really doing with the experiments is trying to prove that your mitigation systems are working, right? Because you've got some kind of outage that you think might happen, um, that you think is important enough that you need to guard against. So you build in a bunch of controls and uh, ways of handling that outage. And then you don't just say, okay, I'm done. You have to actually exercise that control to prove that it works. And that's really the chaos engineering approach is to, once you've built all of these capabilities, how do you make sure that they work? So we're assuming that things are going to break and it's it's the corrective action and, and what we do in that situation that comes into, in, into focus. And I, I guess there's a, a discipline around practicing these things and, and making them normal. And one of the one of the mechanisms that certainly we use at Amazon and that I've seen other customers adopt too is the, is the concept of game days. So maybe share share with the listeners what a game day is and how it kind of fits into this, this world. Yeah, and I, I think there's a good analogy here. Um, so just forget all about computers. Um, everybody that's ever worked in an office knows that every now and again they'll test the fire alarms. Right? And you, they tell you that this is just a test, but you have to go file out of the building without using the elevators and stand in the parking lot for five minutes until they've done a roll call. And it's something that's extremely universal. You can go anywhere in the world and people know that you're not supposed to go in the elevators and then there's this process. So we've ended up training a large number of people in a very unified response to a very specific type of failure mode. Right. And this is, you know, it's really boring every time you do it, but every now and again, the building is actually on fire. And I'm pretty sure that this has saved huge numbers of people's lives because people know how to get out of buildings. Everyone knows what's expected. You don't get everyone trying to jam themselves in the elevator. Right. So that's, that's where I'd start. Right? Talk about training the people in how to handle emergencies. And even if you've got a completely fragile system, it's going to break at some point. So what you can do is train people in what to do when your system breaks. And you can get, typically, there's an escalation process that you'd have in place. Um, You'd have a conference call that people are supposed to call into. So you can practice holding conference calls. You can practice having people pull up all of the dashboards that show whether the system's working or not. And you can have people practicing the incident resolution life cycle, right? So detecting an incident, responding to it, doing the triage, and then having the report out meeting later and the sort of blameless post-mortem concept, all these kinds of things. So this is just humans practicing that. And if you've never been on 
one of these calls and your part of the system breaks, you don't really know what to do. So there's a process why everybody that's ever going to be on call should go through some kind of people training for what is this call process and they should be held. And this is the very first stage of a game day, right? You're, you're creating a simulated outage so that people understand what they're supposed to do. And, you know, every time you do this, there will be an incident review where you say, okay, what went well? Even though we were simulating, people took too long for people to find the right dashboards or this information wasn't available or the system wasn't in the state you thought it was in. So just getting the human part of it together is really powerful. De- definitely. It's, it's interesting. Like I participated in a few game days for various reasons and one of the things that leapt out to me is, is a lot of the systems you access during a crisis are maybe not systems you normally access day to day. And it's amazing how credentials expire, passwords are forgotten, etc. And if you can't even get into the tooling you need to triage your problem, then uh, you, you've got a problem. So exercising those those streams, those processes, even you know our numbers up to date and and phone calls and email addresses, yeah. it's it's kind of the boring fundamental Giving stuff. Everybody but you've got to on do the it. same phone call. Minor detail. And you brought up a great a great example here: credentials expiring. You know how many outages are caused by credentials expiring? It's embarrassingly large number. Uh, we had an issue recently where a fairly well-known uh, large SaaS provider didn't renew their their domain, mm-hmm. and, and everyone was trying to get into their products. I won't mention the name, but um, most people would, may have remember this. It was a few months ago. Um, their entire company was down. The CEO was tweeting, "I'm sorry," right, because nobody could get to the product, and they just re- somebody had forgotten to renew the domain and breaking. You know, so. If you think about um, what, what, how would you approach this whole chaos engineering idea? Well, what would you do if the domain wasn't renewed? Well, what could you do to get around it? Maybe you have the software have an alternate domain. And in test environments, you practice um, you know, cutting off access to DNS in certain ways so that what happens if the system can't see DNS? Does it still work? Does, does it still get to it? Um, We've had problems with DNS providers being attacked where it turns out it's a really good idea to have a secondary DNS provider and have a way to switch over. So this is very fundamental stuff. It's got nothing to do with your software architecture. It's just to do with web services at a very basic level. Um, Security credentials run out, all kinds of things. Um, Lots of things you can simulate there. Yeah, and lots of things go wrong. And I think it's interesting. One of the things you talk about in this domain quite often is is having other teams kind of you know be the the red team or the chaos team uh, to, to bring a fresh set of eyes. Because I guess as as architects or software developers, we tend to you know we love our creations and we see it through a particular prism, and we may have blind spots. So so have you found that having different teams testing different areas has helped? Yeah, there's certain mindset for people who are particularly good at finding weak links in things. And the two kinds of teams here, the chaos engineering team are really usually people that have lived through a lot of outages and they kind of see the patterns and they can kind of see where things fail. Um, So it's quite often somebody that's been on call a lot that's a really good person to come in and think about how, where are the weak links? So we could talk, actually, there's a whole deep subject about exactly how you should be, if, if you've got what you think is a robust system, how you get into it. And the other the other side of this is security testing, because if you're down from a security attack, is this, you're still down, right? And 
there's quite often people now set up what's called a red team, which is a security team who are trying to break into your system, but they work for you. So they'll break in, but hopefully they won't actually break it. They'll just record, hey, I found a vulnerability. This new exploit apparently gets into this system, and then they file bugs to go fix it. If you're not testing your security with a red team or, or hiring companies who do penetration tests regularly, then you don't really know that you're doing a good job on the security side. And it's a very similar thing here. You don't know you're doing a job on the availability side unless you have a team that's trying to figure out ways to simulate various types of failures and make sure the system has built-in margins to absorb those failures. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always the unexpected that gets you. And it's, it's always funny when you hear people say the phrase, you know, oh, that could never happen. Um, that's like red rag to a bull for these types of testing teams. <laughs> yeah, it tends to be it, any one thing you, you're good at, but it's the combination of 10 things that, that build up. And that combination tends to find the failures randomly. Uh, it's, it's, um, there's a really good book called Drift into Failure by Sidney Decker. Uh, who's a Dutch guy who currently lives in Australia. Um, but he's a one of the gurus of this space. He's written several different books. Drift into Failure is the book that I ran into about eight years ago or so and passed around a lot of the teams at Netflix, and that really informed a lot of the thinking there for how to approach it. And the idea here is that any one action doesn't cause a failure, but a sequence of things, you're actually using up your margin. A system that's built to be resilient um, suffers this type of failure where you end up pushing it closer and closer to the edge and then suddenly it falls over and you go, oh, I didn't know it would fall over because it last, you know, the last few times I pushed it in that direction, it didn't fall over, right? Mm. But you're getting, think about, you know, let's say I blindfold you and you're standing on the, on the top of a hill next to a cliff edge and say, start walking about, but you're blindfolded and you go, you know, there's a cliff edge there somewhere and you know that you're several feet away from it. And as you're walking around, you might get overconfident and just step off, right? But if you stay careful all the time, you're sort of reaching out and being tentative, testing by taking a few steps in each direction. And really what chaos engineering is trying to do is given wherever you currently are, they're trying to make sure you've got a little bit of margin in every possible dimension that you might have some failures. And then, if you actually get too close to the edge, they'll detect it and back out quickly and go, okay, I found the edge. We need to build a bit more margin in this space. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting concept because there's a sort of elasticity in that margin too. And one of the things I think is, is interesting is as people get more, I guess, mature, as you said, in this practice, is the type of failure domains you can look at. And one of the ones you highlight is not an application failure, but just a, a general slowing down, so s slow responses, maybe a set of responses are slower or the overall system slowing down. They're much harder to detect, aren't they, in the, in the conventional way because it's still kind of, quote, unquote, working, but it's not working properly, which could mean something else is happening. Yeah, quite often what happens then is if, if one – I mean, this is – this has been going on for years. Let's say that somewhere in the back of your system, your collection of microservices, one of them starts running more slowly. The services a little bit further up will slow down, and maybe somebody starts retransmitting, uh, timing out and retransmitting, and then you get a retransmit storm, and the whole system ends up just doing nothing but retransmitting to itself, and, and then that overloads so all the other traffic can't get through. So there's basically a congestion collapse problem or a retransmit storm. You get, um, let's say something stops working for long enough 
and everyone retransmits at the same time. Then you get a thundering herd where everyone comes back in at once and overwhelms the system because instead of coming in at random, they're now coming in as a sort of a wave, right? So there's a number of ways that systems tip over just through something getting an intermittent failure or something getting slightly slow. And if you look at what the, the Netflix sort of model that they have now, what they're doing is trying to do find the most sensitive parts of the system. There's this thing called lineage-driven fault injection, where the lineage is start with a business transaction, say your sign-up flow or the core thing that your product does. Like in Netflix's case, it's I clicked start and I should see a movie a few seconds later. And if I, do, if I click start and I don't see a movie, then that's a problem, right? So they measure what is the sequence of operations for some critical business transaction, and then they come up with hypotheses for... Well, if, if we inject some latency or failure errors in some part of this, one of those microservices, let's just make sure that the rest of the system doesn't fall over when that happens. And does it have the right timeout strategy? And does it um, maybe fall back in, a, in the right way to some alternative or, or some degraded mode, which still works? So they're testing all of these, and they run thousands of tests a day in a very automated way. And as I said, this is the most advanced sort of current example of this. But I think that it's something that more people are getting interested in as we go forward. Absolutely, and there's there's elements of those ideas that can be can be applied immediately, and others, as you say, you, you mature into. Hey, Adrian, let's uh, change tack just briefly because. You're doing a lot of work at uh, Amazon Web Services around open source, the open source communities, our contributions to open source. So maybe uh, if you want to give our listeners a quick update on the, on the, some of the state of play in open source and AWS. Sure. Um, yeah, I kind of have two sides to my job. One job is to go out and talk to a lot of customers about their architectures. That's the architecture strategy piece, trying to figure out some of our most advanced customers, where are they going next and what are the big problems they're solving? And on the other side, um, I had some experience from creating and running the Netflix open source program. And I've hired uh, a handful of people who um, are open source experts and we're driving the open source community engagement for AWS. In particular, we've joined, I've got sort of really two current focuses, one around containers, the other around, around machine learning and AI. So, uh, Arun Gupta, who's on my team, has been working uh, with Kubernetes and the uh, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And um, between the two of us, we did the internal justification to join CNCF. So we run CNCF on behalf of AWS. We're the representatives. Um, he's been doing workshops and blog posts on how to run Kubernetes. Um, and I'm sort of more air cover sort of tracking things, making sure we've got the budget to do things and stuff like that, um, and the board-level responsibilities at CNCF. So that's one area. The other area we're focused on from an outbound perspective is the open source artificial intelligence deep learning. And it's very, there's a lot of open source projects here. Uh, the one that we're driving most strongly from an open source perspective is the MXNet, Apache MXNet um, project. Um, but we're also helping with TensorFlow and things like PyTorch, and there's lots of uh, packages out here. And then the projects which run on top of these, like um, one called Sockeye, which is a machine translation library that runs on top of MXNet uh, framework. And this is the basis underneath the AWS Translate 
service which was recently announced. If you look underneath that, you find that the uh, there's a copy of Sokai and a lot of training and, and things like that. So you can kind of see all these things tying together. There's open source underneath some of the services that we're bringing out nowadays. Yeah, there's some, some, some great things available, a lot of stuff on, on GitHub, even things like uh, around encryption. You know, one of my, my favorite projects that's been released a little while ago was the uh, the S2N library, yeah. which implements TLS SSL in a really lean, nice way. I think that's a, another great example of, a, of tooling that's available to the community. Yeah, one of the things we've done is create a open source uh, web page for AWS. Um, and so you can get to it, opensource.amazon.com or um, open source.aws or whatever. There's a few different ways you can write the URL and it lands on a page there. And we've also reorganized the GitHub landing page at um, I think aws.github.io to feature projects more clearly. So we worked on the web presence. That's something my team owns and we're updating. Um, we also created an open source blog and we've been uh, the very first blog post we had after our like, hey, we're here thing was actually a blog post about S2N, and it got a lot of traffic. It was on Hacker News for a day or so. There was a lot of discussion about it because it wasn't just that we'd created, I mean, this project's been around for a while, but we actually got some fixes into the Linux kernel to enhance the security of TLS because you need strong random number generation, and there were some ways that um, the secrets could leak between processes and things like that. Uh, during a fork. So there was some work going that went into the Linux kernel as a result of the project that we'd created. And it had been, it just came up in like last September, it actually turned up in the new version of the Linux kernel. So this is an interesting project. And it's one that's got quite a lot of uh, traffic. I think the interesting thing behind S2N is it really came out of the poor level of support for the Open SSL project a few years ago, we, we decided we wanted to do we could do better and build our own version of this. And it's used by S3, for example, for all of the incoming secure traffic. So it's it's got some pretty big use cases. Absolutely, very very handy library. Hey, Adrian, thanks again for coming on to the podcast, and uh, look forward to having you on again. Sure, um, it's been great, and I encourage people to, to reach out. I'll be traveling around the world doing various. Uh, I'll be at various AWS summits, um, and you know, Netflix has a chaos engineering team. Amazon has one. Um, quite a few other customers have them. So it's, I think it's something to look into whether you should set up a, a chaos engineering team or at least think about the topic. And um, I've been doing a few talks on this. I did a a, a, a quite a long discussion at uh, AWS reInvent. I think it's ARC219 is the code from 2017. So you can see my slides there, and I'm doing updated versions of this um, through the year as I do various conferences. So thanks very Sounds much. Sounds great. We'll put links in the show notes as well and, and get access to that. Thanks again, Adrian. Thanks. Bye. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We do love to get your feedback, AWS podcast at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.